What is the highest technique you hope to achieve? We have no technique. Very good. What are your thoughts when facing an opponent? There is no Greetings, friends. I'm Arnold Schroeder, and this is Fight Like an Animal. Find episode bibliographies at againsttheinternet.com, where you can also find my contact information. Please do write to me. And if you want to support the absurd, psychotic work for which death is the only retirement plan that goes into making this podcast, please find me at patreon.com slash biological singularity. I want to dedicate this episode to my friend Carson, also known as Sparrow, who died at a tree sit in the West Cascades in Oregon in 2003. In many respects, Carson was my closest friend within the Earth First movement. He had a primer gray Datsun, and the characteristic sight of he and I was I managed to convince him to paint black flames on the wheel wells of his, like, 1980s primer gray Datsun and so that was us right it was like cruising around the mountains running supplies or scouting or digging up a logging road to put concrete in it or whatever nonsense we were up to in the primer gray Datsun with the black flames on the wheel wells Um, in the Sierra Nevada mountains where we spent time together I kind of always had my art friends and my you know my political friends there was a lot of segregation, and Carson was really the one person who solidly and utterly transcended that divide and was just my friend in, in absolutely every respect. He was a lot of the work that we did, you know, had the usual frustrations that political organizing always has, and he had this really joyful demeanor where he was always just completely prepared for militant confrontation. And uh, he was so willing to put in very hard work to make that happen, but he just didn't have that anger and frustration that is so characteristic of people like that. He really tempered a lot of my worst tendencies um, as, you know, like a bitter, disaffected, like, guy who, you know, whatever. Like, he just really was capable of, like, going to meetings where people were being really frustrating and just, you know, having this kind of, like, smiling demeanor about it and being like, yeah, I think this is all kind of nonsense. <laughs> we should just go protect the forest. Um, and, and it was really beautiful and and really uh, made both myself and a whole lot of other people feel a lot more sane. And uh, one, the last story I'll tell about him is like one particularly beautiful moment that I experienced with him. He worked for a wine distributor for a little while and he stole all these like really expensive bottles of wine. And we had this night where we were just playing chess and listening to Metallica. I only ever beat him at chess like twice. Like we'd just sit around in the forest playing chess all the time. He was a genius at it. Um, but you know, it was uh, like, we just drank all these bottles of like super, super, super expensive wine and listened to Metallica and played chess. And I just remember <laughs> being so happy. Um, Carson for you, man. I love and miss you, brother. 
I don't think uh, technology is going to kill us. I think a judicious use of technology and an intelligent use of technology is the answer. I don't believe in going back to um, a, a, a pre-industrial society as a solution to to any any problems. I don't think uh, technology is going to kill us. I don't think uh, technology is going to kill us. I don't think uh, technology is going to kill us. I don't think uh, technology is going to kill us. This audio is from a documentary called Earth First, The Politics of Radical Environmentalism, which I believe was released in 1987. And the imagery is of people standing around in a field somewhere with their fists in the air, chanting these words, Earth First, Earth First, over and over again. And the expression of this is one of those cases where you know i should be making a video but like the expression of ah participation mystique or whatever that uh people in this video are exhibiting is really profound they're very clearly having this moment of like a sense of profound connection with one another and collective purpose and so one of the things that i'm going to try to do in this episode is talk about the radical environmental movement, I guess, you know, Earth First in particular, um, and and try to give people who are alive and politically aware right now, but weren't in those days, a sense of how really, really, really different that movement was and kind of like its basic animating perceptual framework from anything that's happening now how different it was to like the experience of participating in that movement or and just kind of like in the worldview that it espoused and i want to look at why it went away and what it was replaced with and you know like how that influences our behavior and the type of revolutions that we can conceive of trying to create and all that stuff Um, I mentioned at the end of the last episode, you know, talking about the Andreas Malm book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, um, how he seemed to be missing this very essential point, how he spent a couple hundred pages uh, engaged in this earnest soul searching about why people don't just go out and break the machines that are breaking the world we live in. And you know, how at some point at like kind of the very end of the book, he sort of categorically dismisses all of the Earth First and Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front and, you know, related tendency, people in related tendencies who who did exactly the kind of thing that he's like making this case for uh, because they had the wrong ideology. He's like, we just don't even need to assess and, but really, you know, because he was like, because they're too about 
animals and forests and the earth and oceans and the sky and all that, you know, and it's, it's the wrong way to look at things. Um, but, but it's like this weird disconnect where it's like, but obviously like what your book should be about is why these two tendencies produce such different behaviors. The climate justice framework that Andreas Malm is operating in and claiming is the only valid way to look at environmental issues and the radical environmental framework, um, you know, like why one is so profoundly associated with sabotage, why that's the first thing that most people think of and, and why one has exhibited this, you know, as Malm so like heart wrenchingly documents has exhibited this incredibly uncanny tendency to be able to state catastrophic consequences for what's happening, but to not, you know, take that kind of obvious next step and just go out and set something on fire. But I don't just want to look at that particular dimension that, you know, admittedly a uh, very interesting dimension of the relationship between worldview and mode of contestation. Um, I, you know, I want to look more broadly at what the difference between these two ways of seeing the world are and how they motivate or paralyze us in different ways and, you know, like how they map to a wholesale process of social transformation or don't. And there'll be this sense in which, on some level, I guess we could frame this as a dialectical process. These last four decades of environmentalism that I'm kind of assessing from, you know, from 1980, let's say, to the present. Um, but but it's like one of those it's one of those things where I don't think the dialectical process is actually necessary or interesting or relevant. I think that both within the like deep ecology framework that motivated and animated movements like earth first and the climate justice framework there there is like a little bit of this hyper compartmentalization like as is so characteristic of the modern world and our you know insane trajectory of ever intensifying perceptual fragmentation i just think that you know people in either framework took modes of reasoning that are perfectly valid and then kind of like amplified them and uh, took them to a sort of abstract schematic extreme where they no longer function. Um, but, you know, like I, I will claim that the thing we should be trying to tend towards, like why it's good to assess these two phases of environmentalism, um, is that like we should be looking for a synthesis between these two phases. Uh, but, you know, but again, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it's not really like, exactly thrilling in the way that it would be if these were like actual like like epistemically necessary iterations of some like opposed perspectives or whatever i just i don't really think they were and then after we've done some like history and we've just you know like kind of characterized in general terms and sort of like intuitive well, like the terms that somebody who was involved in both movements might use, like, you know, like these are just the ways that people saw the world differently in these two movements. Um, well, then do some brain science that I'm really excited about and not entirely prepared to address. It's a 
yeah, like a, a body a line of inquiry that uh, will definitely have to like mostly relegate to future episodes but i have in the past uh, talked a lot about how i don't really think that variation in perception of environmental issues comes down to what you know like a rational assessment of some like explicit statement of risk or whatever consequences harm uh, but that it's like a much, uh, it's variation in a much more like fundamental state of information processing and relationality to the world. Um, and, you know, like I've touched on different aspects of that at different times. I talked with Ken Ward in one episode where he introduced the framework of different kinds of intelligences as in like potentialities to kind of like experience a particular truth or another um, that are used in like uh, learning theory and, you know, like just like actual educational contexts. And um, I have talked about the relationship between empathy and environmental sort of like consciousness um, and uh, the, you know, like the various psychometrics that people have churned out to sort of directly measure uh, one's sense of unity with nature, which also maps pretty directly onto the psychometrics that measure one's uh, receptivity to like the mystical experience. A lot of overlap there. Uh, but well, we will look at it from a different perspective with some different brain science that I'm, I'm really excited to introduce and, the, you know, so like there is, but I will just acknowledge there's like a, a tiny bit of, well, maybe not even a tiny bit of randomness in this episode. This is like, there's that Borges story, Talon Akbar Orbis Tertius, that starts with the, the very Borges-esque statement. Um, I owe my discovery of Akbar, which turns out to be an imaginary country, to the juxtaposition of an encyclopedia and a mirror, right? It's like, it's like Borges writing... an archetypal description of a Borges story or whatever. Um, But uh, this kind of feels like that. It's like, it's all these topics that I am, you know, that are of fundamental like salience to the podcast, but there is like the somewhat haphazard conjunction of stuff that I was reading and that I encountered where I was like that, that's this episode. So, you know, like I, I, owe this episode to the conjunction of an email that I got from a listener named Chris. Chris, thank you so much. Uh, wherein the book, The Master and His Emissary, uh, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World was recommended to me. And the fact that, you know, it's the juxtaposition of that and the fact that I had just done that episode on sabotage and the the fucking landscape of like podcasts that I want to someday make or topics I want to someday address is infinite. But it, it just felt like when I got to the end of it, I was, you know, I was like, well, I should just I've essentially queued myself up to do this episode about these two phases of environmentalism that I've kind of always wanted to do. And then I, I saw that like these two things, this book I was reading and this episode actually had a lot to say about each other so so here it is so i guess in order to justify my claims about what earth first kind of fundamentally was um, i just want to 
make this brief digression into noting that when somebody does something, we uh, we have an embodied experience of being them doing or experiencing that thing, particularly maybe uh, in situations where any kind of communicative behavior of any kind is happening, music, language, you know, any kind of like gestural anything. Um, we, we have, the, there are, you know, portions of our brain that are devoted to modeling, being that person doing that thing. Um, and that the earth first, like the core premise was kind of like, in some sense, it was really like this performance and literary genre, like, you know, the, these like, or more general than that, but like these modes of communication that all had this one characteristic where, you know, the person is basically expressing their sense of unity with the world and their willingness to fight the destruction of the world from that perspective to, as you know, the phrasing so often goes to be the world fighting back against its own destruction, to be the forest fighting against the logging, right? To be the ocean fighting against the whaling. Um, and then people would have these kind of like empathetic experiences like you know there was like a very sort of i mean basically there was a collective ritualistic aspect to earth first of getting more and more into this place of unity as a group right because that is a, a core human psychological motivation you know is to like have this group that you have this deep sense of unity with but the group having uh, a deep sense like the thing that they're experiencing unity about is a broader sense of unity with the world itself and then translating that into something or other but there was like a like that subjective quality i really want to emphasize how like how a sort of like a, a an energy would be built up through some kind of like you know some communication some mode of expression and it was like almost like it would get released and then there would be some you know some act whether it was like sitting in front of a bulldozer or piling logging slash on a road and tearing it up with pickaxes and rolling boulders onto it like running around playing cat and mouse uh with loggers in the forest and things like that you know but it was like there was a kind of uh a perceptual framework of like you have to find something to do but really you have to like get into this perceptual state and then that will guide you and so there was always this like I'd almost say like semi haphazard. I don't know, this very just like embodied felt, you know, sort of like motivation. Um, like I, I would say that a lot of the stuff that happened, a lot of the, the like actual conflicts around points of ecological destruction sort of really didn't have a, a highly deliberative strategic quality and were more these kind of like effusions of emotion and you know rage and and will and this is like we get into obviously this very mm, I, I don't know it's complex terrain it's just it requires nuance because 
this is a characteristic, as I've talked about before, of, you know, of affluent societies in this post-materialist shift where politics is confusingly uh, sort of about, you know, like the instrumental pursuit of actual changes in the external world, but it's sort of about expressing identity and having experiences and, you know, and expressing niche identity. And so there, there is a way in which Earth First is just one of the many tragic exemplars of this tendency for people to do a kind of politics that's actually just about having an experience. Uh, at the same time, I think the experience that we were having in Earth First is one that is actually really important to fight for in the population at large, that that was that we were, you know, seeing the world in a way that everyone ha does have the potential to see the world in that um, is essentially totally necessary for us to not destroy ourselves. And so, right. So that's that's the complex tension there is that like my my critique of Earth First is my critique of a lot of activism, which is this like you know, this niche self-expression thing that happens over and over again. But also that particular, like, niche of perception is uh, that people were expressing is, is actually really important and, and does need to be, you know, disseminated. So, you know, obviously this is an episode with no small amount of emotional baggage for me. And it was a pretty wild ride. I, I could have gone on a longer version of The Wild Ride. I didn't like reread every damn book that I read when I was a teenager, but it was pretty interesting to go back and read stuff that I read when I was young that had a huge impact on my consciousness. Um, and, you know, like in particular, I, I definitely just like remember so distinctly all of these like pretty specific phrases and stuff from some books that I read when I was like 17, 18 years old. And uh, it, it was super interesting to go <laughs> to go back and just like reread some of that stuff and experience the contrast, uh, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm not even going to try to characterize the, the one thing I, I will say about all this stuff is just that, like, when you participate, any revolutionary endeavor, it, like, partially just requires embracing the absurdity of thinking that you can completely reconfigure society. And then when you look back on that stuff, I mean, you can experience really rapid frame shifts of this variety if you're, like, embedded in some conflict, some raging conflict that maybe you spent a long time helping orchestrate in the lead up to or whatever and it feels really intense and consequential and like the world is being fought for in this in this like you know situation you're in and then you can literally go like walk a couple blocks away from where that's happening to get a cup of coffee or whatever and the world just feels like the world still and you're like oh okay um you know so a, a lot of it just felt like that like just like looking back on some of this stuff that felt when I was participating in it at the time, like such a serious fight for the world. And now kind of looks like just, you know, like one of any huge number of social phenomena that happened to be hap like, you know, occurring at the time. Anyway, um, there 
were a number of good books or interesting books written about the first like 10 years of Earth First, which uh, is, is a phase that we do have to examine um, and the kind of like the rupture that happened at the end of those first 10 years from 1980 to 1990 and the, the rupture being over the extent to which Earth First should explicitly engage with issues that weren't like in the most rigidly defined sense like ecological issues um so i'll put all these books in the bibliography but you know if you want to read some of the stuff about this like if you want to read some earth first history i'd recommend green rage radical environmentalism and the unmaking of civilization coyotes in town dogs uh i guess i would recommend confessions of an eco warrior by dave foreman and timber wars by judy berry um i'd also and it's just kind of this interesting sad thing where that phase that tells us something we need to we need we do need to examine this but there's a phase of earth first history that had like a ton of media attention and where everybody needed to write a book about and that kind of is like the first 10 years or so and then even though that movement was very dynamic and active for certainly another like 10 years and arguably another like 15 um it, it, there stops being as many like coherent comprehensive like accounts and there just stops being as much of the same kind of media attention um interesting to note so um you know unfortunately there's just like actually not that much great stuff about earth first in the 90s or whatever i would recommend and this is coming from the uk where there was also a very very active radical environmental movement uh down with the empire up with the spring which is an assessment i think it was written in 2003 and it's you know so it's an assessment of like that phase of earth first in the uk but you can get some sense there's very parallel processes happening in like the uk the united states and australia and then to some extent uh, other parts of europe and then you know obviously in less affluent societies militant opposition to resource extraction based on a sense of identification with the land hasn't stopped right there's, so there's no but at the at the time, there was always a sense that, you know, we were an allied movement with people who were fighting and dying to stop the destruction of the living world in, you know, the so-called global south and, you know, basically everywhere that doesn't have the glass towers. But so and again, I am not I am just not trying to do a movement history. I'm not trying to give an overview and be like. And this is the logging road blockade and this is the tree sit or anything like that. I'm, I'm really just trying to talk about how the world was viewed um, and, and how that translated into different behavior. But, you know, so to do an exceptionally concise history um, in 1985, dudes, most of whom had some kind of career environmentalism thing happening. We're working for some kind of institutional uh, environmental advocacy entity like the Wilderness Society or whatever. Uh, went on a camping trip in Mexico and very much inspired by the Edward Abbey novel, The Monkey Wrench Gang, 
decided to form, you know, a militant cadre because they were so disaffected with mainstream environmental groups doing exactly what mainstream environmental groups do, which is just being one aspect of a system that is destroying life on Earth. No one stands up and questions uh, technology or industrial society because they don't recognize the rights of other species uh, to inhabit the earth. The only way you can have industrial society is to trample. And they articulated a fundamental critique of, you know, technological civilization based on the premise that all life should, in fact, continue to exist. Um, and if you have wandered through the vast, bewildering landscape of leftism for any time, you may have heard something to the effect that the movement I'm describing was deeply misanthropic, you know, just like fundamentally anti-human, or that it was specifically horribly racist and sexist, or, you know, some other combination of uh, afflictions of that variety, uh, you know, that it was a subject to. Um, and I would say that most, like, honestly, just so much of that perception is attributable to the presence and the statements of exactly one motherfucker, uh, one of those five aforementioned dudes who went into the Mexican wilderness and conceived of Earth First, Dave Foreman. And it was interesting to me, I think that a lot of movement people kind of ha just find the association of Earth First with these couple like celebrity figures like Edward Abbey and Dave Foreman and whoever so insanely frustrating because these people really just didn't have that much to do with a whole lot of the actual movement work that people did. And, you know, so it's just like, it's just kind of annoying. And there was never anything remotely approximating. I just cannot overemphasize this point enough. There was no ideological homogeneity in Earth First, and there was an explicit disavowal of it. Like one of the most common turns of phrase was let's let our actions set the finer points of our philosophy. Like there is a, a real sense. I mean, this, I am just an old earth firster, right? And like this sensibility has probably like actually come across in this podcast a number of times where I've talked about how in my political life, I've been like borderline, I don't want to say like anti-theory, but just sort of, you know, like really not oriented towards it as a motivating framework of, of, believing that there, there's like a lot of traps there a lot of ways we can get lost and that there's really something to be said for uh you know just like finding common uh common senses of what should be done but it's actually really as i was going through all these old texts and stuff I first of all was kind of like oh, okay actually like Dave Foreman just really was so centrally like visible and so extensively analyzed in so much of this media and he was like as i said earth first was kind of this like performance genre or like you know this mode of communication first and and everything else kind of uh progressed from that and, and honestly he was just really pretty good at uh at 
what he did, which was mostly just like speaking and writing. And um, there is this kind of uncanny thing like I've spent a lot of my life doing and being around different types of performances. And there's some people who just, you know, it's like they can do something that you can describe. And it's like a very simple set of like gestures, behaviors, vocalizations, whatever. But there's just like a way in which they are incredibly captivating doing it. And so I I would say like Foreman said stuff that was just kind of like pretty, I mean, like I can say all those things and I think a number of other people can just like really, but he just like really, you know, really just put himself into it. And he really just made people feel something when he said these things, when he said, I am the mountains, I am the ocean and I am going to defend myself. And so should you, you know, people just got chills. And, you know, and so if I'm being totally honest, like things that he said and wrote uh, did totally help me, you know, help pull me into the earth first movement. Um, but n- none of which were the many things that he is known for that people are appalled by, which actually it is interesting to know are, are like the first associations one would make if one were, I don't know, kind of like evaluating earth first and hearing about it from a lot of perspectives today. But like, I just didn't, I didn't even like know about any of his awful politics at the time but to to give like a you know a very general characterization i mean there there really was this sort of ecological fundamentalism that translated into um a vague hostility at the very least towards humanity um that that was expressed in in some of his work and some of his writing and speaking and moreover, a, uh, a like a cultural affectation around being um, like a like a redneck, you know. And this might feel I'm gonna I'm going to try to actually make this make sense because it might feel like we just went somewhere really weird. Um, but so you know, like to just like give you some examples, uh, there is this whole fucking kitsch thing in the first 10 years of Earth First that actually was the source of the the direct conflict that precipitated the, the split in 1990 between the like ecological fundamentalism has to only refer to mountains and forests faction and the like Earth First should embrace a broad social critique faction. Um, there is this insanely kitsch thing where they were like, like foreman and maybe like i I just feel like this is like literally like two other guys he kind of like got on his trip or whatever you know we're like um we're the real patriots right like like the the multinational corporations who are mining and logging this beautiful world are like they're destroying america and we want to protect it so there was like an american flag thing that would happen in some earth first context uh there was um i I don't know like some statements to the effect that famine in ethiopia was good a good thing or something like that and just like appalling fucking nonsense and then uh but then the one the one that takes it into this territory where i'm like you actually like really need some explanation for this is that 
Foreman advocated the (laughs) the construction of a border wall between the United States and Mexico. And here, friends, before, you know, before somebody's like, you're a monster for even invoking this person's name or assessing how they, you know, like shaped a perceptual framework that you think is in any sense valid. I also do want to point out that this was an actual Sierra Club policy for a while, or I I might be... I I think that it was something that was put to a ballot. There's some things that Sierra Club members all vote on and policies. And I I think like whether the Sierra Club should support the construction of the United States-Mexico border wall was a serious ballot item for like their general membership more than once or something like that. But, you know, but right. So the point that I would make is that if you find somebody doing some climate justice work, they almost inevitably are engaged in, and this is certainly true of my organizing in the last 10 years, they're almost inevitably engaged in organizing things that take money from nonprofits like the Sierra Club, right? And I actually think it was much more destructive and insane for a big professional nonprofit with a giant membership to be taking a serious policy position as opposed to one guy whose whole trip was saying stuff that was outside the Overton window and getting people in the media to be like, oh my God, there's these people who want to end civilization, right? I'd still think it's insanely fucked up, but but more than it being, you know, deeply, deeply insidious in terms of the implications for our fellow human beings with whom we share this planet. Um, Like what I want to note about the Dave Foreman border wall thing is that this dude spent years of his life devoted to preventing roads from going into wilderness areas because roads fragment wildlife habitat, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And it's like, you know what really does a doozy of a job at fragmentation are walls, right? Like like a wall between Mexico and the United States, ecological catastrophe. And I, I really don't think that as much as people exhibit horribly unintegrated thinking all the time, I just can't imagine that that never occurred to him. And moreover, the whole trip, the American fucking flags, the like we're rednecks thing, and the the border wall thing all feels like hitch to me. It It all feels like a shtick on some level. And I'm not alone in this perception. Let me actually, I'll read you a passage from... Chris Maine's uh, Green Rage, Radical Environmentalism and the Unmaking of Civilization, that is like the, the standard copy of this, uh, of this kitsch, of the like, we're the earth first rednecks thing. According to Chase's fanciful history, radical environmental thought came about of a swirl of chaotic primeval theorizing about Buddhism, Heidegger, and psychotherapy. The central problem, concludes Chase, is that radical environmentalists desire to return to the Garden of Eden, where humanity lived in bliss. A yearning that must come as a shock to the likes of Foreman, 
a former Marine, Mike Rozelle, a former oil field roughneck and woke, a former bouncer and wilderness guide in some of the wildest country in the lower 48 states, right? It just gives you like some sense of that particular aspect of the kitsch, right? The like, you know, so it's like, we're the true patriots and we're defending America from the unpatriotic multinational corporations that are destroying it. Uh, we'd maybe like a border wall or rednecks. And obviously people really like were horrified and offended by this. And I actually think that that was kind of the point. I think a better way to understand the, the redneck kitsch thing theme in earth first and a better way to understand some of these just sort of like shocking insane statements like there should be a border wall between the united states and mexico ethiopian famine is good or whatever are really just people trying to maximally differentiate the radical environmental movement from other political tendencies and i believe that and again you need a little fucking nuance to understand what i'm saying i believe that as much as I am appalled by the actual content of the statements that they were making. The underlying perception that the ecological fundamentalism they were advocating would die if Earth First was subsumed into other political tendencies was 100% accurate, and that's exactly what happened. And so like that is kind of what I'm trying to look at. But yeah, it was a, it's a very, I mean, it feels like an insanely square one conversation that was happening. I just, I just see absolutely no reason on any like intrinsic logical experiential level why one cannot be both deeply, you know, f to feel like a, an utter continuity with all of the world and all of life and to want to embody its defense and to include your fellow humans in that framework right and in fact if you're a freak for evolution and you're a freak for acknowledging you know like living in accord with the nature of things as they have evolved then you just have to acknowledge that a particular characteristic of the human species is affinity for and concern for one another, right? Um, and, and it's not like this, it's not like there was ever a phase of the radical environmental movement where this basic reality was, you know, like not apparent to most participants in the movement. So I think if one wanted an example of the right perspective, or I don't know, the perspective that I think is kind of obvious that just like negates this totally unnecessary uh, schism and um, is ultimately just actually way more representative of where almost everybody was at in Earth First all along. Uh, you know, we could do worse than to turn to Judy Berry's essay, revolutionary ecology she says i was a social justice activist for many years before i ever heard of earth first so it came as a surprise to me when i joined earth first in the 1980s to find that the radical movement paid little attention to the social causes of ecological destruction 
Similarly, the urban-based social justice movement seems to have had a hard time admitting the importance of biological issues, often dismissing all but environmental racism as trivial. Yet in order to effectively respond to the crises of today, I believe we must merge these two issues. Starting from the very reasonable but unfortunately revolutionary concept that social practices which threaten the continuation of life on earth must be changed, we need a theory of revolutionary ecology that will encompass social and biological issues, class struggle, and a recognition of the role of global corporate capitalism in the oppression of peoples and the destruction of nature. I believe we already have such a theory. It is called deep ecology, and it is the core belief of the radical environmental movement. The problem is that, in the early stages of this debate, deep ecology was falsely associated with such right-wing notions as sealing the borders, applauding AIDS as a population control mechanism, and encouraging Ethiopians to starve. This sent the social ecologists justifiably scurrying to disassociate. And I believe it has muddied the waters of our movement's attempt to define itself and unite behind a common philosophy. It really did. It muddied the waters exceptionally. And then she says, he makes this great point at the end, because there, there really was this tension. Another way to understand all this is that there was a tension with like a kind of liberal reform tendency that was coexisting with a let's destroy civilization tendency and that, that there was like more of a tension particularly in the first 10 years because some of earth first founders were really wrapped up in institutional environmentalism uh, you know there was like a, a a definite quality of like let's say things that are politically you know like way outside the realm of acceptable discourse or whatever and let's talk about destroying civilization, but let's kind of do it in hopes of influencing policy, right? And so when she wrote this, uh, there had just been like a, a big wave of repression against Earth First. And so she says, the fact that deep ecology is a revolutionary philosophy is one of the reasons Earth First was targeted for disruption and annihilation by the FBI. The fact that we did not recognize it as revolutionary is one of the reasons we were so unprepared for the magnitude of the attack. And so, yeah, I think that I think that this was written not too long after. There's this famous split in 1990, Judy Berry um, and a couple other people. I think Karen Coulter of the Blue Mountains Biodiversity Project was one of them. Uh, burned an American flag, re recalling that there were sometimes American flags around at Earth First Rendezvous, which were the annual like gatherings or whatever, um, burned an American flag, a big debate about social issues versus the sort of like strictly ecological orientation uh, happened. There was a very public split and Dave Foreman, and I guess I just don't even know who else, you know, like the maybe like a couple other people um, who were in that same mode uh, very like publicly left earth first and a kind of kind of new era of it started although again it's just this thing where the actual organizing the people who like really did the movement work I, I don't know like if all that much really changed but there was definitely a major change in the sort of like 
process of dialogue that was happening. Like I said, the first 10 years really got a lot of media attention. And it was really like this phenomenon where, you know, like people would be like, we should destroy civilization. Uh, owls have a right to exist just as much as humans. And then like you know, people on like the nightly news would be like, there's these crazy people who are having this gathering and they're saying that we should just not have a civilization anymore and that owls and lichen are just as important as humans. They're called Earth first. Are they going to destroy America? You know, it was like fun like that. There was like, a, you know, like it just like it really mattered to people that other people were like thinking and saying the things that were happening in the Earth first movement. And that aspect of it really did kind of like die out more after that and um i don't know you know things just changed but um but that crazy binary that like meaningless absurd binary that judy berry is describing where there were you know people who were like we are the mountains and we will defend ourselves and then there were people who were like environmental racism is important but the mountains aren't that binary was very real. I think it still basically exists. And that essentially what happened is that the radical environmental framework died entirely in favor of that other justice-based framework, which is, you know, like is not in itself incorrect any more than deep ecology is in itself incorrect, but just desperately needs to be synthesized, right? And, you know, is very schismatic and incomplete on its own. And so even though I emphatically side with Judy Berry and her faction in that split that happened within Earth First in 1990, and generally think the notion that identifying with the living world at large means that you have to be hostile to humans is entirely logically inconsistent on its own terms and, you know, just doesn't like appeal to me experientially in, in the slightest. But I do actually think that the evolution of Earth First from that time on, from that split, allowed it to be subsumed into other political tendencies to the point where the deep ecology framework simply died. We aren't left, we aren't right, we aren't in the middle, we aren't even in front or behind. We aren't even playing that game. But so as much as this question of like, you know, should we care about people or every other species on the planet, uh, to me is like asking, you know, should I like sex or should I like birds? It's just like a completely incoherent opposition. Um, I would put that conflict between a sort of like, overstated logic within the deep ecology framework and an overstated logic of the climate justice framework in the broad context of the tendency within the hyper-technological world that we live in today of just sort of maximum epistemic differentiation for its own sake, the, the reality that I've tried to convey in like the group mind series and stuff like that, that there is some extent to which uh, differentiating your modes of reasoning, your behaviors, your affect from other groups is like inherently appealing because it intensifies the sense of cohesion 
of the group that you belong to and how like everybody is doing that in our society how our evolved psychology for participation in a group that used to be literally like the people we shared a mode of subsistence and a, a place of residence with and you know like had kids with and helped raise their kids and stuff like that um that those psychological mechanisms are being employed in increasingly niche groupings that uh, technology allows and you know how we're like epistemically diverging in order to create these senses of group cohesion so that's totally part of it and then I, but i also just think there's a much broader sense in which mod Modernity presents us with so much information and so much so many different models that most people aren't able to achieve a synthesis of all of it and that compartmentalization and you know like hyper competence in certain domains of reasoning and hyper attentiveness to certain truths at the expense of others is just very very characteristic of the people that we've become Right. So so I would place I would place this divergence between a social version of environmentalism and an environmental version of environmentalism in that context of just like these this ten, general tendency towards perceptual fragmentation, this this tendency towards a lack of cohesion and fragmentation that is just like so broadly characteristic of the times that we're living in. You know, and, and I would also say that the very fact that this split happened in Earth First when it did, when all this repression was occurring, there had just been this big wave of arrests, you know, the FBI, the FBI COINTEL prod Earth First really, really, really hard. Um, I, you know, like the fact that there's always going to be, if there's differences in a movement, those differences will often be accommodated until there's a sense of real threat, like external threat of some kind, and then they will become a crisis. And that's, you know, that is exactly what happened. But I guess it also, you know, the differences were already there. And so this, this process happened where Earth First became more able to kind of like navigate a broad landscape of different issues and to interact with people somewhat more on their own terms, right? To, to ally with, uh, with people's struggles um, that weren't, uh, strictly speaking, ecological. Um, but, but like I said, it, it allowed it to be subsumed by other movements eventually and so the 90s were like this kind of transition phase where i would say the deep ecology framework that had always animated it was still very much alive and since the vast majority of earth participants never wanted a border wall and weren't particularly patriotic or any of that other fucking nonsense you know it's not even really like it was experienced as this huge change or anything but i would say that the movement became more confrontational in a in a kind of like broad sense, like it became more overtly revolutionary, definitely more punk rock, but um, but was still really distinct from other movements because that process that I described was still happening. That sense of like Earth first being a sort of like ritual of collective identification 
with the world at large and then you know conceptualizing oneself as being the part of the world that is defending itself that that was very much alive the the sort of like that that just like deep sense of integration into the world that animated earth first was still totally there but you could you could see how more and more it was becoming amenable to a different kind of politics and how people were coming into the movement. I mean, I started participating in the mid nineties. Um, you know, you could see how more and more people were coming in who really just didn't have that, you know, like that basic set of subjective coordinates, um, in the, in the early form of earth first in the eighties that I missed at, at, in some meetings, there was a thing where people would be like, if a new person came, they'd be like, describe your conversion experience describe your your moment in the wilderness where you saw that all existence is one and that it was your job to fight um right and and, you know and it was like this kind of it was like because if you haven't experienced this truth we don't trust you and you you definitely could tell that 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 emphasis was getting that it was still like very present in the movement but it was like definitely less of a front-loaded strict criteria and that there were a lot of people who were participating who had uh, just different politics than that and had never had that experience and so getting into the essence of like what that experience just really like is and how how we should understand it and whether it matters to uh, a future hypothetical trajectory of environmentalism is important and the way that I want to characterize it is by talking a little bit, I, like, I think that I actually can very concisely and somewhat definitively characterize what this state is. But um, I think that there's also like a, a characteristic set of things that people say when they're in that state that is not the, the actual like kind of state of being from like an information processing or brain science perspective but it are you know like the kind of the statements that you would make from that perspective so i'll talk about that a little bit first which is just like very commonly some statement to the effect that all species have a right to exist or that reality is much larger than the human created world right so here's christopher mains uh putting it into his words But Earth First's emphasis on ecosystems went far beyond a more sympathetic awareness of the role of ecology and human welfare. Although there were any number of pragmatic social reasons for protecting as much of the natural world as possible, Earth First stood for the more radical proposition that the natural world should be preserved for its own sake, not for the sake of any real or imagined benefits to humanity. With this perspective, Earth First transcended the environmental movement's reformist program and embarked, with tentative if noisy feet, upon a larger agenda of ethical and cultural defiance. And a little later on, evolutionary theory denies the existence of a hierarchy of beings, declaring that there is only genealogy, similarities and differences arising out of a three and a half billion year saga of organic inheritance in which we are only minor players. Taken seriously, evolution means that there is no basis for seeing humans as more advanced or developed than any other species. Homo sapiens is not the goal of evolution. 
For as near as we can tell, evolution has no telos. It simply unfolds life form after life form. Elephants are no more developed than toadstools. Fish are no less advanced than birds. Cabbages have as much ecological status as kings. Darwin invited humanity to face the fact that the observation of nature has revealed not one scrap of evidence that humankind is superior or special, or even particularly more interesting than, say, lichen. Okay, and then Judy Berry saying pretty much the same thing, because again, this division is much more apparent than real. Deep ecology, or biocentrism, is the belief that nature does not exist to serve humans. Rather, Humans are a part of nature, one species among many. All species have a right to exist for their own sake, regardless of their usefulness to humans. And biodiversity is a value in itself, essential for the flourishing of both human and non-human life. And then just to drive the point home, Dave Foreman saying more or less the same thing. There's another way to think about man's relationship to the natural world. An insight pioneered by the 19th century conservationist and mountaineer John Muir, and later by the science of ecology. This is the idea that all things are connected, interrelated, that human beings are merely one of the millions of species that have been shaped by the process of evolution for three and a half billion years. According to this view, all living beings have the same right to be here. This is how I see the world. Okay, so again, what, I, what I'm giving examples of here, I believe, are uh, you know, instances of the kinds of things that one says from the state of being that characterizes the deep ecology framework, the radical environmental framework, but that it is not really the state itself. These are all ultimately abstractions, right? These are all ultimately arguments that one could make. And, and honestly, I actually really dislike some of the language and some of the... There, there's just like this weird quality to it. Again, this is that thing where I would characterize the overall like schism that I'm evaluating in terms of this tendency towards maximum epistemic differentiation and like hyper attentiveness to certain truths at the expense of others but there's almost like this paradoxical you'll see why it's paradoxical in a second tendency to get away from observer effects and to kind of want to disavow one's unique human perspective and the fact that one's uh evolutionarily contingent human perspective is just seriously the only uh, means by which one has to evaluate the world and give value to anything and, you know, so I, I guess, first of all, just like the the sense that you get from from reading these statements that there's a desire to kind of like get away from, you know, like anthropocentrism definitionally is this idea that we would evaluate the world kind of like from a perspective of humans being at the center of it. But you are at the center of your perceptions. You're just you're right there. You know, you don't you don't get to not be. And then, like, if you start applying themes like rights, if you say, like, you know, species all have a right to exist. I, I just uh, there's like this weird thing happening where you're actually putting something in profoundly human terms, but also disavowing that humans should be the arbiter. Uh, you know, like, it just doesn't really. So there's like. There's that aspect of it and kind of, um, I don't know. I, I guess I just, I always, um, I always found biocentrism to have 
this sort of schismatic weird need to like negate the fact that it was coming from humans and uh i think that i think that's like a big problem in and of itself but i I think that like what this state of being is is an embodied experience of direct continuity with the world at large simple as that so uh this is from that same 1987 documentary in which an earth firster from that time says like what i think exactly should be understood as the deep ecology framework i think it entails on on how we experience the world if we experience the world as an extension of ourself of our ecological self of a if we have a broader and deeper identification then we feel hurt when other beings, including non-human beings, are harmed. Or to put it into a foreman, you know, a, a, a foreman kind of phrasing, um, I am an animal, a living being of flesh and blood, storm and fury. The oceans of the earth course through my veins. The winds of the sky fill my lungs. The very bedrock of the planet makes my bones. I am alive. I am not a machine, a mindless automaton, a cog in the industrial world, some new age android. When a chainsaw slices into the heartwood of a 2,000-year-old coast redwood, it's slicing into my guts. When a bulldozer rips through the Amazon rainforest, it's ripping into my side. When a Japanese whaler fires an exploding harpoon into a great whale, my heart is blown to smithereens. I am the land. The land is me. Or, to put it in the considerably less overstated terms of a Lapland uh, herdsman, um, and this is, from, this is from Green Rage again, he, uh, describing how this herdsman, you know, uh, tried to blockade the construction of a uh, dam or, or refused to leave the banks of a river about to be dammed. When the police arrested him, they asked why he was willing to break the law for the sake of a river. His answer, it is a part of myself. And Maine says, this pre-philosophical sense of identification with the natural world has existed in all cultures, in every epoch, and to a greater or lesser degree, mostly lesser, it affects all of us today, even within the confines of our technological culture. Yeah, I I just don't know exactly how to convey the difference that I personally experience then and now. And it's not a difference of this this embodied experience of unity with the world is something that is hyper accessible to me. I feel like I spend just so much of my time there. You know, I literally walk around for a couple hours a day, just sort of like marveling at like the configuration of leaves on a tree and being like, Oh, I kind of feel like I am those leaves moving in the wind and like watching some crows and being like, "Ah, I kind of feel like I'm a bunch of crows in the sky. I kind of feel like I am the sky. I mean, like I, I really am always kind of there. But at the same time, it's like there's something that the fundamentalist rage that I and others within the movement experienced as a natural manifestation of that embodied sense of unity with all life. 
I, I find so it's like I miss it intensely and I find it kind of just incomprehensibly distant um, in this way. You know, it's I, I'm like, I, I just already said earlier in the episode, I truly am just an old earth firster in the sense that like that political, te- like what I have done since I stopped being really like explicitly associated with the earth first movement in like 2001 um, is still just like very much a continuation of a basic set of sensibilities, uh, both about, you know, like a fundamental worldview, but also like about how to do politics or whatever um, that I inherited from that movement. Um, but, but at the same time, like as much as I, I, I do want to say, I, w- I want to make this point because I'm trying to understand this and to communicate it that you know i'm talking about how earth first died in the world but i want to acknowledge that it kind of died in me too right that 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 experience of of the just that that euphoric collective rage like becoming the rage of the earth is really hard for me to imagine and i'm not totally sure uh, how much of the various factors I'm aware of contribute, you know, like, cause like one obviously just is that this movement, this cultural framework is really not around anymore. Um, and so, you know, like people are responsive to other people. That's, that's how we're wired. And so to some extent like that, like that's probably really just part of it. But I think that there are a few other factors like, um, you know, so so one reason that this state is probably less accessible is just because everybody is so much more afraid, right? You know, like it really is true that talking about overthrowing the United States government and ending civilization and returning the world to wilderness was like it's just like more fun to talk about that kind of stuff in in 1985 or 1997 or whenever than it is now because now it just feels so much more like or maybe if we go stand in front of somebody's office with a sign for a couple of hours we'll all go to prison forever you know everybody like the the degree of repression has intensified so much and you know like earth first in the 90s definitely like you know running around in the forest um like like evading cops with assault rifles and, and flak jackets and stuff like that and just thinking it was so funny that police were using military hardware, right? Different world. People uh, in that documentary that I just mentioned, the 80s Earth First documentary, um, you can watch somebody talk about how they went to jail for like three or four months as an indication of how the system is really afraid, you know, and, and like... I mean, now it's just so common for people to go to jail for so much longer than that. So, like, the fear, the, especially post-9-11, 9-11 helped kill Earth first as it, you know, just so radically, radically shifted our culture and politics in so many ways. Uh, but I think that maybe really, actually, an even bigger aspect of it is just the the nature of the ecological crisis now as opposed to then. Because... It definitely Earth First was definitely born in the age of discrete, finite ecological harms, right? Where you could still conceptualize the world as existing in this, you know, binary state of like places that people have destroyed versus places that they haven't. And that was so special and magical and meaningful. 
and um you know like you could really think about about still like preserving the whole living system of anywhere that people hadn't actually like directly you know like gone to that place and physically like altered and destroyed it in some way and that's just not true anymore i guess another way to say this is that earth first was kind of like a, a grassroots political tendency born in the framework of the science of conservation biology and the climate justice movement is a grassroots political tendency born in the science of climate change and and those feel really 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 different because one is about actual tangible places and one is about global processes and the way that the entirety of human activity impacts them so you end up there's this like paralyzing complexity that you immediately enter into when you're thinking about climate change uh, that wasn't as much the case with the earth first movement although this was always one of my this was my truly central critique from the very beginning from the time i was 17 years old in 1996 and i was like how do i get to idaho to fight with these people was this, uh, you know, the sense that this focus on wilderness exclusively, while there may have been like ecological justifications, and I would actually argue that there were really important uh, social justifications in the sense of like movement building, um, because it gave people a place to be to like develop cultures of resistance. Um uh, you know, so like as much as it might make sense on those terms, I was always like this ultimately has to come down to a fundamental transformation of human societies. And um, I, that that's just so much harder and more paralyzing and like not as fun as saying this mountain is sacred and we're not going to let you guys get up the mountain to cut down the trees. Right. Being like. Should we insulate people's houses better and maybe affect like a 10% reduction? You know, it's just like in the amount of miles people drive annually, whatever, it's just, it's so different. And so like, that's just an obvious. And I think that there's also just like a sense of like, you know, we, we become overwhelmed by horrors at a certain point when we are confronted with a horror, you know, hopefully we experience the inclination to fight, but at some point we might get kind of overwhelmed. And just like the fact there's the complexity aspect and the, the kind of like paralyzing, you know, nature of how interrelated all these variables are looking at uh, the phase of ecological collapse that we're in. But I think there's also just there's a despair, you know, and, and it just like feels harder to feel that joyful identification with all of life in a sense of being the part of that vast web of life that fights for itself it's just it's just hard because everything is dying but i i guess i'm gonna say that i think what i am advocating for is that we try to find that state of being um and and that it's actually pretty important and I would say crucially that it is something that could meaningfully channel, you know, when Earth First was born, most people just absolutely didn't think about environmental issues. 
and now like very significant proportions of especially the world's youth feel like we're doomed and are experience just like deep pervasive anxiety rage dread you know grief etc etc and i believe that the deep ecology framework the sense of profound connection with the world and a willingness to fight for it on those terms um, is a way that a lot of that malaise could be channeled meaningfully and productively and that actually interestingly gets into what will be my final critique of earth first as i ever knew it which was just that you know what what it is if if it if what it consists of is this embodied experience of continuity with the world i would argue that it is a relatively recent cultural phenomenon that people could get so alienated from that experience and that it, it truly is something that belongs to everybody that in many ways earth first was trying to recapitulate what could broadly be characterized as an indigenous way of seeing the world or like a, a way a mode of perception that was characteristic of all of humanity until very recently in our history and that it, there should have been more of an emphasis honestly on human psychological needs at that level at you know at the level of uh of like asking what kind of states of being we inhabit in the culture that we live in now and what kind of states of being we would like to inhabit right and offering uh not just a fundamentalist rage on behalf of the earth based on a sense of embodied connection with it but also you know some sense of how human life in general is better if one lives in a state you know in a society that would be created by people inhabiting that state that's how i want to say it but i, th I think that this work this idea that you know a fundamentalist ecological revival is a, a, a viable prospect that should be pursued in the current uh, context you know there, there's more than one barrier there including all the ones that that i just mentioned I, I think it's also and this is something that i just don't think has been examined nearly enough i think it's actually really hard to overstate the hostility towards ecological values that are present among m many environmental campaigners or like commentators on environmental issues who are coming from the more like you know the justice perspective that prevails right now but again not saying there's anything wrong with any of the actual content of that perspective i, I just think there's this real lack of synthesis there you know there's no reason that should be in schismatic opposition to a love of nature but in empirical reality it just kind of very often is and, and I don't like, so, you know, like in my life, I really can't count the number of times that I have uh, witnessed some statement or been in some conversation where somebody says, you know, something to the effect 
about how we, you know, we can't talk too much about birds and flowers and trees because nobody cares. And it's actually deeply misanthropic to, uh, to have too much affinity for the earth. And, you know, we can only do politics on these terms of trying to, uh, relate, you know, like to exist exclusively in terms of, uh, very specific human needs. And, um, I don't really actually know that I can recall at any times that some like ecological fanatic has rolled up on somebody trying to do any kind of social organizing and been like, you know, none of this really matters because all the people you're trying to save are going to die because the world is dying or whatever. Like, I don't actually like, I see way more of this kind of like hostile monolithic perspective coming from people who really don't have an ecological orientation and like so many other things in our culture it's just i think it's actually just made people really afraid to uh to express like the kind of like effusive profound identification with the earth that characterized earth first and that i think would characterize a any viable movement towards um survival now and you know and I, and I will just say again recapitulating this notion that earth first in some sense was just presenting a version of a, a broad mode of perception that characterizes indigeneity you know it's like earth first as an entity has died things like that are supposed to die i don't see that as a problem at all um, but it's actually not totally true that that entire style of politics has died it's just really more or less all led by indigenous people now. And where that's able to happen, I think that's great. I, I do think the extent of, you know, displacement and extermination is such that there can't actually probably realistically be indigenous led campaigns all over, say, North America or wherever in the way that there should be. But, um, but, you know, that's the place that I feel like a version of that same thing is totally happening where, you know, where both the actual like things like the campaign against line three or the Dakota access pipeline, uh, where it's like the actual like actions and tactics and just kind of like the feel of the whole thing is very similar, but it's also, I guess it's just like a place where I think ecological fundamentalism or whatever you want to call it a sense of connection with the world or whatever is still very central to the the actions and it's like the same you know this is the same basic framework really where there's like these collective rituals and then those get transformed into a political conflict of some kind um, but but anywhere else i feel like people are just actually really afraid to express ecological sensibilities because there, you know, it is just seriously hard to overstate how hard people will come at you with all of this, of the stuff about how it's implicitly or explicitly anti-human. And then what's weird about, you know, all that, what, uh, like I have essentially the same strategic critique of the climate justice movement as I do of earth first, which is, you know, once again, I just don't think you're actually tailoring this to like, I don't think that real human needs are actually being thought about all that much. 
And, you know, and so much of that framework gets into this kind of like meeting people where they're at, like appealing to people's immediate self-interest with basically within the system that we already inhabit. Um, you know, so like, like all that stuff, like, like I, f- I just feel like the, the quintessential climate justice messaging is somebody falling all over themselves to be like, we're not doing this because of reverence for the earth. We don't fucking care about the earth. We're actually doing this because we want to build a bunch of good green jobs, you know, bunch of jobs. We're going to just like throw a whole motherfucking shitload of jobs at y'all as if like everybody just loves going to work so much that the best thing that you could ever do for them is just make sure there are a ton more just jobs everywhere so that if they happen to not, you know, like be doing enough work at their job already or they don't have a job, they could just go, you know, like fall into some other job because they're just coming at them from every every angle. Um, like I just I think that any serious attempt at a revolution on behalf of survival of our and other species will have to present a version of society that is substantially different from the one we live in and that fortunately we have you know some basis to try to do that because the society makes people fucking miserable and that we should you know like actually really think about that and take it seriously because climate justice messaging doesn't actually appeal to most people even though there's this obsession you know it's like so obsessed with like finding what perspective isn't being consulted within existing environmental messaging and making a direct appeal to whatever, you know, people who possess whatever identity or whatever, but like people just actually aren't that responsive to it. And at some point, you know, you would have to like really look at that and be like, maybe we're not talking to people about what they actually care about. It's no longer a concern for the environment that motivates these people, that it's a, it's a social revolution that they're talking about. Okay, but here is where we have to, you know, this being Fight Like an Animal, the podcast where there is no such thing as a digression, where we have to ask, what does this all have to do with what the structure of our brains can tell us about the structure of reality and some insane nonsense that Descartes said once? And the relationship between schizophrenia and philosophy, which is to say that, you know, we'll bring in Ian McGillchrist's The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World to uh, characterize this state. If what I'm saying is that there should be a fundamentalist revival, there should be a synthesis between the climate justice tendency and the deep ecology tendency but that that synthesis involves there being a fundamentalist revival of a sense of embodied continuity with the world and a willingness to fight as the world on behalf of the world. Um, And that that would be a meaningful way to channel the profound angst that we are all feeling watching the world end on the internet. Um, What do we want to know about this state? Like what is useful you know, is it is it simply the case that one advocates for it by saying the kinds of things that I read from the excerpts of these texts about feeling a sense of continuity or about the the actual context of the world being in reality being so much larger than human endeavor, or species having an equal right to exist, whatever we mean by rights 
if we're trying to take humans out of the equation or whatever, um, you know, I think that it's actually useful to look at this from a brain science perspective and the, the relationship between modes of processing and culture. Um, and that's what this, that's what this book is about. It is, um, amazing. It's an amazing book. And I know that right, left, uh, you know, hemispheric differences had this kind of like big embarrassing pop culture phase kind of went through a phase very similar to neurotransmitter deficiencies causing depression or whatever. It's like some scientist was trying to wow some reporter, some reporter wasn't very scrupulous, you know, but like somehow um, a set of pop culture conceptions about what the right and left brain do got inculcated in a lot of us that are, are sort of not true or like at least involve tend to involve this fundamental misconception that the right and left hemispheres of our brains uh, engage in totally different tasks or process totally different information and it's really more the case that they engage in tasks or process information in different ways but they you know collaborate on the same tasks and the same information and I will certainly do a lot of violence to this topic because I, I think that the way that McGilchrist makes his case, um, his you know his case is that there's processing differences in the left and right brains, but that we can actually trace a history of Western culture wherein there have been phases where um, there was like more or less left hemisphere dominance. Um, he, he very much, he explicitly says that we can think of the right and left hemispheres as like different selves, which I, I have said before um, about, you know, just like different like states, uh, behavioral states or like different, you know, networks of brain regions interacting, whatever. Um, and that these different selves like truly do have different personalities in a sense, like come to different conclusions about the world, employ different modes of reasoning. And that, you know, like there, there's this really interesting way in which uh, different cultural conditions have, uh, have like brought out one mode of processing over another, how there's been kind of like a dialectical process between them throughout the course of, of the history of Western culture specifically. And it just so strongly overlaps with this core you know, this essence of this inquiry I've been making in this podcast, which is this idea that if we are talking about revolution, we are talking about the expression of certain behavioral potentials that already exist within people or um, different selves emerging, you know, at the expense of others, basically, right? And like this idea that we kind of contain multiple selves uh, again, reason about the world differently and come to different conclusions about it. Um, and that, you know, different conditions will bring those out or suppress them. And so, you know, this, that idea, I think, is um, more developed in or, or just the idea of like culture uh, causing a wholesale different version of a self to emerge is more developed in this McGilchrist book than anywhere else that I have personally encountered. So 
um, there'll, there'll certainly be uh, a whole lot more work to do in this podcast that derives from this book. I'm, I'm not going to try to do like a great job of characterizing all of it. But um, basically the two types of processing are easy for as much as the big embarrassing pop culture phase of brain hemispheres got a lot of stuff wrong you probably actually do have some intuitive sense of the different types of processing and they're also familiar because and this is like a point mcgillchrist draws out over and over again because they actually just do show up as like these explicit statements about ways of looking at the world that are in this kind of constant dialectical tension throughout the course of the human experience, you know, right? So like the, it's, it's kind of what you would expect. Like the left brain really is more about abstraction. It, it tends to isolate things from context to, um, search for consistency to establish binaries right to and to draw lines and to categorize phenomena as discreetly uh existing on one side of a line or another uh mcgillchrist says that if there was one word that he had to use to characterize the left hemisphere's mode of processing it would be division um and then the the right hemisphere is the is the mystic right it's the one that it, it sees things in terms of continuity and ambiguity and context and um, always assumes that there is more to the world than is being perceived at any given moment we can um, we can kind of think of these one one really good frame for thinking about the different types of processing is just in terms of attention and, and what it is and you know the left hemisphere being a very focused attention that is useful for the manipulation of objects and things like that and the right hemisphere being a much broader form of attention that's useful for not missing the overall nature of the you know <laughs> reality that we inhabit one of the things that is definitely fun about this fact of these two different modes of information processing is that one would expect that you could probably um, get into some pretty deep inquiries about the nature of reality by looking at the structure of the brain, since it is, after all, there to apprehend reality. And that, you know, one of the things that comes up is we have this... Uh, this dual mode of processing that looks like it actually might reflect a fundamental property of the universe, right? Which is a tension between these two states. So, so as McGillchrist says, the most fundamental observation that one can make about the observable universe, apart from the mysterious fact that it exists at all, prompting the ultimate question of philosophy, why there is something rather than nothing, is that there are at all levels forces that tend to coherence and unification and forces that tend to incoherence and separation. The tension between them seems to be an inalienable condition of existence, regardless of the level at which one contemplates it. The hemispheres of the human brain, I believe, are an expression of this necessary tension. And the two hemispheres also adopt different stances about their differences. 
the right hemisphere towards cohesion of their two dispositions, the left hemisphere towards competition between them. So that last point is important, but but to flesh out the other point, um, you know, like examples of this fundamental dichotomy could be like the wave particle thing, right? If you know, if you like observe uh, light uh, in a certain in a certain manner. Um, it behaves like a wave, but if you give, if you provide it too much focused attention, then it fundamentally shifts into like a totally different state, a particle, right? Uh, th things like that, where things are, you know, both A and not A or whatever, both X and not X. Um, and then they do their work in relative isolation. Uh, the two, the two brain hemispheres are uh, connected by some real deep, like subcortical stuff, um, and a structure called the corpus callosum, which um, it turns out not only like allows information transfer back and forth between them, but also does a lot of work inhibiting uh, connectivity between the two hemispheres. Uh, you know, like allowing them to kind of engage in these two mutually irreconcilable modes of processing, uh, you know, but then to also achieve a synthesis. So, you know, it, it achieves separation, but also connection. And so for a variety of reasons, there actually really is a primacy here um, to the right brain's mode of processing in a temporal, like sequential sense, in that there's good evidence that it kind of does the initial processing, right? Like the, the initial experience that we're gonna have of anything is just like the embodied sensory uh, context embedded one. Um, and then we can abstractly think about it. We can try to schematize it and manipulate it in our minds and you know invent classificatory schema and place it in, within them and things like that. So, you know, so our, our perceptions, our processing goes from right to left. Um, and then, you know, we can basically for analysis, I mean, we can manipulate it. And then it is in McGillchrist's formulation, um, uh, kind of like returned to the right brain for a final cohesive systemic integrated understanding ideally or at least characteristically that's the that's how integrated processing works and you know what characterizes a whole whole lot of human history but um but the point is is that we can get stuck so mcgillchrist is talking about philosophy as just one sort of you know uh characteristic specimen of this sequence that uh, of processing he says philosophy shares the trajectory that i have described as typical of the relationship between the hemispheres it begins in wonder intuition ambiguity puzzlement and uncertainty it progresses through being unpacked inspected from all angles and rested into linearity by the left hemisphere but its end point is to see that the very business of language and linearity must themselves be transcended and once more left behind. The progression is familiar, from right hemisphere to left hemisphere 
to right hemisphere again. And that's definitely as much as uh, putting it in terms of brain hemispheres specifically is, is new to me. You know, like uh, that's certainly how I have always seen the scientific process, right? I, I really, really hate when people use the fact that the universe is ultimately unknowable um, to not engage in a rigorous inquiry as to its nature in the first place. I, I think that's it's weak and lazy and there really is something to be gained by doing that. Right. You know, like I, I hate new age nonsense and postmodernism and all that stuff. But then like I've always said that my real dispute is just with anybody professing more certainty than is valid about the, their knowledge of the universe, whether they claim to be representing, you know, like science or whether they're like the universe is the dream of a tiger god or whatever. Um, and, you know, so like I also really, really just don't like it when people get so lost in their models that they're sure they're describing reality um, you know, and, and so I think that, that, that can be characterized by like so many, like there's so many things in science that are like this, where we know a lot about, uh, their specific, the specific functions of a phenomena, but we can't really say like what the phenomena is, right? You know, like you could, you could like, get into a conversation with an inflationary cosmologist where they're like, yeah, you know, at, at like so little time after the big bang, these like sub particles were forming particles or, or whatever. I don't know anything about, about cosmology, but um, you know, it, it like, like give you all this just like exquisite nuance about that. But if you were like, okay, but what, what is the big bang? Like what banged and why? They just be like, we, you know, we don't know the something that was fundamentally symmetrical became asymmetrical or something, you know, um, and, and there's just so much stuff like that, that, you know, where it's like we can know a lot and, and, and like using these modes of processing where we do decontextualize things um, is incredibly useful but then we we have to like have a fundamental ultimate humility about the fact that we inhabit a very mysterious universe and so there's this great um i should i should power through i i gotta do episodes upon episodes about this stuff but one last thing i'll say is there's this great um uh discussion in this book about evidence for a kind of evolutionary battle between the right and left hemispheres in the course of human evolution um, there's a asymmetry between them and it's uh apparently mostly from suppression of like of gene expression on the right side of the brain uh, rather than the left side uh like growing bigger it's like the, the growth and development of the right side was suppressed a little bit, you know, so there's an examination of like the evolutionary pressures that might have, have like facilitated that, you know, how like in the course of evolution, like we had these two selves 
And, and one was like, wow, look at the continuous flow of all being in which I am seamlessly in, enmeshed. And then the left hemisphere was like, shut up, hippie. I'm, I'm trying to I, like freeze in time my image of this animal so I can imagine, you know, or whatever. Like I'm trying to rotate this stone in my head so that I can imagine how to flake it to make a spear point or whatever. Um, and, and, <laughs> and so, you know, it caused some asymmetry and uh, how like that actually, you know, was probably like a big part of the story of evolution was like some legitimate competition between these styles of processing and their needs to function at the expense of one another. But especially, uh, like he said, you know, that being more the left brain's disposition to be in active competition with the right, um, to, to oppose the integration of the modes. And, um, you know, that probably being like a, a big characteristic of modern life and um so that that would like uh get into what i was saying earlier like this idea that the earth first mode the the deep ecology thing is an embodied experience of continuity with the world right um being like and that being a recapitulation of a a mode of perception that was characteristic of indigeneity you know, this is this idea that uh, modern life and Western culture and whatever else are, are characterized by fragmentation and division. And that's because of a, a success on the part of the left brain under certain conditions at, at like kind of capturing more of the processing more more of the narrative that ultimately emerges of that you know comprises one's perception um and then the you know indigenous ways of seeing the world or the the deep ecology mode just being characterized more by cohesion and um and a a context right like of, of literally being about uh like being somewhere uh, right like indigenous is like, like it's interesting you can look at how um you know the the sami are described as the last indigenous people in europe but of course they're it's not it's not because they're any more like from there than you know people living like other people in sweden or whatever right it's it's a description of their culture but this this idea you know because indigeneity refers to like belonging to a place to being from somewhere and that just like maybe actually is a really good way to characterize the 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 way of seeing that we all kind of intuitively understand differentiates indigenous people from at least most people in technological civilizations right this is like literally like an awareness <laughs> of your surroundings um and a cohesion with them and um this could also be the uh you know a, a good moment to note that the word environmentalism for as much as 
it, it sounds really like banal or whatever, you know, is like maybe actually pretty apt because it implicitly describes what you're doing when you're not doing environmentalism, which is having no idea what the fuck is going on around you because you're so lost in your abstract schematic of the world that you can't see the world. So McGilchrist says, if one had to characterize the left hemisphere by reference to one governing principle, it would be that of division. Manipulation and use require clarity and fixity, and clarity and fixity require separation and division. What is moving and seamless, a process, becomes static and separate, things. It is the hemisphere of either or, clarity, yields sharp boundaries, and so it makes divisions that may not exist according to the right hemisphere. Uh, you know, and so I would say that one of the very principal divisions that it makes that doesn't really exist according to the right hemisphere is the division between oneself and the world. And that, that you know, that is like, this is just like such a fascinating aspect of this book is this idea that that's why, you know, we have a thousand texts describing uh, the mystical experience. And they're all kind of saying the same thing and just in an infinite variety of ways, but that uh, they tend to describe themselves in opposition to a different way of seeing the world. That there tends to be this almost explicit sense of there being a like rhetorical opponent right there. And I mean, right there, right? Because it's just the other half of your brain. Um, and how like some of, you know, like, like some of what we can understand about uh, statements about the mystical experience is like the right brain telling the left brain how the world is. And that's like, that's McGilchrist's claim, not just about the mystical experience, but, you know, he looks at all of this art and literature and philosophy and whatever else. And, you know, his claim is that you can see this actual like dialectical tension between uh, left-right modes of processing in a whole, whole bunch of different cultural materials and that there's phases where there's, you know, more or less hemisphere dominance, right? That it's like a real, uh, real flux. And so, you know, he invokes all of this evidence for, you know, for instance, saying that uh, the Enlightenment was a time when left hemisphere processing uh, predominated more, you know, like romanticism was a time that like all of this evidence for the relationship or for there being a strong relationship between like the cultural trajectory and this dialectical tension um, in the, you know, in this like tendency for the left brain to sometimes essentially capture the the processing for a while and get us into places where we are following and how characteristic does this sound of modern humanity um, of following these really rigid schematics for how the world works at the expense of our senses and, you know, like in getting into catastrophic situations because we can't disengage from our models. Um, and so I guess like what I would say, thesis of the episode is that 
the uh, the phenomenon of the emergence of radical environmentalism that I just described was one such perturbation in that uh, flux between times when the left has dominance and when there is a uh, an integrated synthesis of the two hemispheres modes of processing. Um, you know, it was a time when uh, there was an escape from that stranglehold of the left hemisphere on our perceptions. And in fact, even though it, this was super fortuitous, um, but, you know, back in that embarrassing pop culture phase of hemisphere difference that that did actually kind of pretty reasonably describe how you could broadly conceptualize some of the differences, even though I only read a, a few pages of uh, Foreman's Confessions of an Eco Warrior in preparation for this episode. I, I did actually stumble upon him saying exactly that he says. In this world ruled by MBAs, we are taught to use only a fraction of our minds, the left hemisphere of the brain, the rational, calculating part. That portion of our brain is valuable and necessary, but is not the sole seat of our consciousness. We must get back in touch with the emotional, intuitive right hemisphere of our brain, with our reptilian cortex, with our entire body. But yeah, I mean, I, I just, I think this is, it's a fascinating way to look at things because again, the, the motivating framework of this podcast is this idea of looking for versions of ourselves using behavioral science that could emerge that would, uh, you know, be conducive to survival. And I, I just actually think it's pretty fascinating to uh to look at left and right brain differences and how that factors into uh you know to these particular questions i've been asking and to a whole broader array of questions that i'll ask in future episodes but it's like five in the morning so i am gonna say that's a podcast and go walk around portland oregon I got done recording this episode and, you know, perhaps it was simply the case that it was late and I was not entirely on my game, but it also might really be true that I just needed to think about it a little more and I hadn't entirely appreciated the extent to which this kind of actually was a central conclusion of mine from going back and looking through all of the material about Earth First and like really thinking, you know, of course it was like a bit of a bit of a journey. And I really realized that a point that I don't think I made explicitly enough in the podcast, the more that I think about it is, you know, like I think I gave some sense of how Earth First was probably a lot more ritualistic and about achieving like a certain subjective state than uh than is apparent you know from the outside or or looking back on it but i don't i don't think i really said explicitly that i think more and more i'm coming to realize the extent to which earth first really did kind of have a religious quality and, you know, I, I want to be very hasty in my uh, in my statements to the effect that I don't mean this in a supernatural way at all. You know, like 
Earth Firsters were notoriously pretty hostile to like New Age sensibilities. Um, and certainly there was room for uh, a wild panoply of of belief systems or whatever, but but that's not what it was. If it was a religion, it wasn't a religion oriented around anything supernatural, right? And so like, but this is still a meaningful statement because certainly the religious experience is something that does exist uh, apart from any like, you know, explicit like entities in the sky it might describe itself as knowing about or whatever um there you know there are certainly neural corollaries of the religious experience it is a way it is a mode of perception and um more and more i feel like earth first was a religion that worshiped life actual life not fairies and elves that are imagined to inhabit forests but the you know the trees and the owls that do in fact comprise forests um and interestingly this was actually i always quip that people with egalitarian politics can figure out how to win by just looking at what the right imagines that they're doing, you know, that, that like the paranoid fantasies about paying a bunch of protesters or whatever, often actually like pretty decent strategies and are often matters of huge projection because, right, like the, the you know, people of all political persuasions have such a tendency to uh, tell you exactly how they're dangerous by describing what you know their supposed enemies do um and uh i think that there is so interesting how much in the 90s and early 2000s there was a theme of you know like logging uh like lobbying groups and stuff like that like filing lawsuits and things like that claiming that environmentalism was a religion right actually claiming that environmental law uh violated the separation of church and state and things like that and i think that a lot of us just found this perfectly ridiculous at the time and actually looking back i really think that a lot of those people you know like those are people who just had religion more centrally and explicitly in their lives and in their politics and i think that they actually to some extent could just kind of see something that wasn't always abundantly clear to some of us which is that you know we were definitely we were bringing a religion into politics because that works you know because that's right that's like so much of how the right wing consolidates power um, and so the reason that I felt like I really did want to make that point as clear as possible and to, to acknowledge that the, the journey of exploration and analysis for this episode um, of this, this movement that I participated in and, and meant so much to me and, and defined me in so many ways, like I, I think I really am coming to see the ways in which I was participating in a religion and that that matters because like a, a you know a more concrete way to like apply that to what I was saying about how I think that this type of consciousness is something people are searching for in their despair about the dying world that they inhabit 
um, you know, is that if, if we're going to talk about like everybody participating in some like revolutionary process purely because they've like rationally deliberated about it and they think that it's a good idea, you know, it's just like nobody feels like that's very real. Um, a massive collective religious response to the very palpable sense of apocalypse that we're mostly all experiencing doesn't sound totally implausible to me. I don't think uh, technology is going to kill us. I don't think uh, technology is going to kill us. I don't think 